you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to the New Testament book of 1 John? Skyler, our pastor, is preaching through Colossians right now, and rather than stealing the next passage he would be coming to, I thought we would just go to 1 John for a minute this morning. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to read the first five verses. As you may know, this is a book written by John the Apostle. By the time he's writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and especially the book of Revelation, he may be one of the last living apostles. He definitely was the last one by the time he was writing Revelation. He's writing to a group of Christians, and I want to just start with verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, people in the New Testament are described in a lot of different ways. I actually thought about this morning, opening it up for just a moment, and seeing how many of those titles you could remember that are given to Christians in the New Testament. But I'll just give you the short, a short list. This is by no means exhaustive. Followers of Christ are called Christians in the New Testament. It actually, when it started in the book of Acts, was a bit of a derogatory term. Christians were called Christians, little Christ, followers of Christ, and it wasn't really meant as a compliment to the first group that was called that. We take it as a compliment today. Followers of Christ were called salt and light. Disciples were called branches, and he's the vine. We're called children, having been adopted into his family. We're called soldiers, slaves, we're called a family. You're actually stuck with me. I'm your brother. You're my brother and sister. We're family. We're called a temple. We're called holy and beloved. One of my favorites, we're called day people as opposed to night people once you've been adopted. We're called heirs, and one day we'll inherit all that the Father has for us. We're called saints. We're called chosen. We're called a holy nation. There's a long list of things that believers are called in the New Testament. In the passage we just read in 1 John 5, John adds another title for us. Another thing we're called. Three times in verses 4 and 5, John says we're the overcomers. We're the ones who have overcome the world. And in case we didn't get it the first time, he tells us again in verse 4, it's your faith that has brought the victory that overcomes the world. In the ultimate sense, Christians, please hear me, in the ultimate sense, you are the winners. You are the conquerors. You are the overcomers. You are not the ones who are defeated. You are the ones who win. And John is driving that point home in chapter 5. So my question this morning to begin with is, do you think of yourself that way? 
do you think of yourself the way John describes us in chapter 5 as being the overcomers? You know, we live in a fallen world, and the world takes its fallenness and it corrupts its view of winning. If you were to ask the world, who are the ultimate winners? Who are the final winners in life? They would come up with a list of people that either are the famous or the rich or the ones who have everything that they think you should have in this life. And they, they, they use the wrong criteria to decide who the overcomers and winners are. It would be similar to if, if you and I decided to go fishing one Saturday morning. And we spend the whole morning fishing, and because this is just what guys do, we make it a competition, and I say, hey, let's, let's see who can outfish the other. And at the end of our fishing, you have a stringer with five fish, and all together they weigh 12 pounds, and I have a stringer with two fish, and they weigh three pounds. And we're loading your boat, and I say, you know what? You have such a great attitude when you lose. And you'd be like, lose? I, I won five and 12 pounds, two and three pounds. And you're like, I, just, I love you. You're such a good loser. And I said, you know what, I'll give you a chance to win. Let's go play golf this afternoon. And so we, we go to the golf course, and you shoot an 80 and lose no golf balls. And I shoot a 105 and lose six golf balls, which has actually happened. And at the end of it, I'm like, I, your attitude when you get beat twice on the same day. Yeah, I mean, you, and you'd be like, Doug, what's wrong with you? I beat you in fishing, and I beat you in golf. I'm like, no, no, no. I won. You lost. Later that day, you would probably text Skyler and Larry and Brian and be like, Doug needs to quit working with our college students. He's lost his mind. Here's my question in John 5. Has John lost his mind calling Christians the overcomers? Is that really who we are? Are we the ones who vanquish, who win, who don't lose in the ultimate sense? We ultimately always overcome. Or has John lost his mind? As John writes this in chapter 5, he knows that his hero, his savior, his Lord, died like a common criminal on a cross. That doesn't look like winning in the world's criteria of winning. As John writes this, he knows that most of his co-workers, the rest of the apostles, the other men that walked with Christ and then God sent them out, most of them have died as martyrs. That doesn't look like overcoming. That doesn't look like winning. And John probably doesn't know it yet, but he's about to head to exile. The Roman government is going to exile him to the island of Patmos, where he writes the book of Revelation at the end of his life. He's going to spend the end of his life as an exile or a prisoner on an old, almost desolate island, not looking like a winner. And if he remembers Christ's words, and you'll remember these, Jesus actually said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. They will deliver you over to courts, they will beat you in their synagogues, and they will drag you before governors. Has John lost his mind in describing him and the followers of Christ and you today as being an overcomer? Well, that's exactly, as God inspires John to write 1 John, that's exactly what God wants him calling you. 
In John chapter 5, what is it that we've overcome? Did, did you catch it? It's very specific. Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Verse 5, who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In chapter 5, it's very specific. You have overcome the world. What does he mean by world? Let's take just a minute and think about that. What is it that we've overcome if we've overcome the world? What is the world? Let me tell you what I think when the Bible talks about world in the negative sense, what it means. It's the way sinful man collectively expresses his fallenness. I'm a sinner, but when I get teamed up with a billion other sinners in the world, that represents the world in its fallenness. It's what we do collectively as a group of sinners. It's a way of life and a spiritual condi condition that opposes God and loves evil. That's the world. That's the outside the church world. It's morals without God. It's attitudes without God. It's priorities in life without God. It's intellect without God. It's life without God times a billion people. It's a whole system of life without God. It shows up in pride, selfishness, lust, greed, lying, rebellion, that the whole world system in rebellion against God. And John has the nerve to say, if you're a Christian, you overcame all of that. You have overcome all of that. You've overcome the moral influence of the world. You've overcome the intellectual influence of the world. That whole sinful system, you've overcome. But I, I want to show you just quickly that that's not all John says you've overcome if you're a Christian. In chapter 5, it's the world, and that's the one we're going to talk about today just for a minute. But look back one chapter to chapter 4. I want to show you he, he's all about us overcoming Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the spirit, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ has come in the flesh, that spirit is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world today. Look at verse 4. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. In chapter 5, it's you've overcome the world. In chapter 4, it's there's a whole lot of false prophets out there, false teachers, spiritual liars, and you've overcome them. You've won against them. You've conquered them. Look at chapter 3, show you one other place. I'm sorry, chapter 2, show you one other place where he uses this same word for overcoming. In chapter 2, verse 13. Partway through the verse, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And at the end of verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In chapter 2, he actually says you Christians have overcome the evil one. You've overcome Satan. 
In chapter 4, you've overcome false teachers and spiritual liars, and in chapter 5, you've overcome the world. Do you guys realize that John has us overcoming all over the place? I'm afraid there are Christians today who don't view themselves like that. We think in Christ we're just barely getting over the bar. And John's like, oh no. You are the conquerors. You are the winners. You are the overcomers in Christ. It doesn't change the fact that John's still going to end up exiled on an island in Patmos. We're not using the world's criteria for deciding winners and losers. We're using God's. We're using eternity as the backdrop. Who are the ultimate winners in eternity? And who are the ultimate winners even in this life? And John argues it's you. Don't let the world tell you any different. Because you're an overcomer in chapter 2, you're an overcomer in chapter 4, you're an overcomer in chapter 5. And I, you don't have to turn there, it's a passage you'd be familiar enough with. But Paul actually uses the exact same word in the original language that John uses here in chapter 5 to say you're an overcomer. Paul uses the exact same word in Romans 8. Do you remember in Romans 8 when Paul says, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us? The word for conquerors, the exact same word that John uses in chapter 5 to say you're overcomers. John says we're overcomers. Paul says we're conquerors. Actually, Paul says we're more than conquerors. He might tell John, hey, you didn't say it strong enough. They're not just overcomers. They're more than conquerors. And in Romans 8, Paul then lists out all the possible threats that might keep us from overcoming. Do you remember the list he has? He says there's tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and the sword, and none of those can keep you from conquering. Not life or death, nothing present, nothing in the future, no height, no depth, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You will ultimately win. Church, on our hardest days, we need that truth. You win. You win. You conquer. You endure. In Christ, not on my own, in Christ, I am now numbered among those who overcome. The question this morning in John chapter 5 that I would like for us to ask is this. How do you recognize the overcomers? What do they look like? How do we identify who the overcomers are and who they're not? How do you know if you're an overcomer? All Christians overcome. How do you know if you're an overcomer? How do you know if you're in that group? Because the world uses the wrong criteria, and if you grade whether you're a winner or an overcomer or a conqueror the way the world does, you might miss it. I would suggest to you that if you use the world's criteria for who the overcomers are, there are some listed in Hebrews 11, that great faith passage, that you would not have seen as winners or conquerors or overcomers. You would not have put them in that category, and God does. Do you remember in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 35, it actually says some of these faithful people were tortured for their faith. Verse 36 says others suffered mocking and flogging, 
Some were in chains and imprisoned. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. And Hebrews 11 says all of them were the overcomers. And if you're getting sawn in two, the world would probably say you're not an overcomer. You just got overcome. And Hebrews 11 says, no, no, no. Those are the overcomers. Their faith is the victory. So the question this morning, just for a few minutes, is does John tell us how to identify who the overcomers are? What do they look like? If we quit using the world's criteria to decide who the winners are, what does the Bible say a winner, a conqueror, an overcomer looks like? Now, I would encourage you sometime, if you've never done it, to read through 1 John just in one setting. It's just a letter. Read it like a letter. It's five short chapters, and just sit down and read it. It wouldn't take you that long. If you read it, you will notice something John does. John lists out three distinguishing markers for who the real Christians are. And what John does in these five short chapters is he lists out those three, and he tells you what those three tests are to determine who the overcomers are, and then he cycles back through those same three things again and again and again. The same three tests over and over. They, just, they show up, almost all three of them show up in every chapter. There's a couple chapters where only two of the tests show up, but in most of the chapters, all three of them show up. Three specific tests. What do the overcomers look like? What do genuine believers look like? Well, he was polite enough in the five verses we read to give us all three of them. So just from the passage we read, he gives us what do overcomers look like? So let me, let me give them to you, and I'm just going to give them to you and then try to point them out in this passage so you'll be able to identify and know for certain whether you're in the group of overcomers. John uses these three tests, the faith test, the love test, and the obedience test. The faith, the love, and the obedience. Those three fruits will be showing up in the lives of overcomers. So the faith test first. He mentions faith or believing in verses 1, 4, and 5. Let me just point those out again to you. He starts in verse 1 in this discussion about who overcomes by saying, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, you have to believe. There's that faith test. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That person has been born of God. Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So verse 1, he calls it belief. Verse 4, he calls it faith. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 1, verse 4, verse 5 is the belief test, the faith test. In verse 1, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means you have to believe he's the Savior and all that that means. We need a Savior. We're sinners. God sent a Savior. You have to believe he's the Christ. In verse 5, you have to believe he's the Son of God. You have to believe the deity of Christ. Church, can I just remind you that it's not just any faith that saves. The world is wanting to believe that. Any faith will save. That is not what the New Testament teaches. And John is saying in verse 5, if you don't get the identity of Christ right, you're not an overcomer. You lose. 
and you will lose for all of eternity. You have to believe, and you have to believe the right things, and you have to believe the right things about the right person. It's a specific faith. So he says you've got to believe he's the Christ, which means he's the Savior. You have to believe, verse 5, he's the Son of God. He's deity. He's God come in the flesh. So he starts in verse 1 and ends in verse 5, highlighting that those who overcome have faith. That's probably the most obvious one for us because we believe that you come to salvation through faith. John agrees. If you fail the faith test, you're not a Christian. If you fail the faith test, you're not an overcomer. If you fail the faith test, you lose. If you don't put your faith in Christ, in the right Christ, the Christ of the New Testament, if you don't get his identity right and put your faith in him, you lose. There's a few other places that this faith test shows up. As I said, it shows up in almost every chapter. Let me just show you one of those places. We won't turn to all of them, but just know it shows up. If you'll look in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, I'll show you one other place his faith test shows up. 1 John 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Chapter 2, he's saying, if you don't get the Son right, you don't get the Father. And if you don't get the Son right, you're a liar. So you have overcomers and you have liars. To John, the world is very black and white. It's very obvious You're either a liar or you get the sun right. And if you get the sun right, you're an overcomer. Over and over, the faith test for him shows up. If you get the son, you get the father. If you get the father, you get born again. If you get born again, you're an overcomer. You get the son wrong, none of it happens. It's the faith test. So the first distinguishing mark of an overcomer is his or her faith. And can I just tell you, it's an obvious faith. It's hard to hide this faith. This faith changes us. Well, the second test is the love test. He mentions it back in chapter 5 in verses 1, 2, and 3. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and here's where the love starts, and everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who's been born of him. Verse 2, By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. Verse 3, for this is the love of God. Verses 1, 2, and 3, he's hammering home that love will show up in your life if you're an overcomer. This is not, church, this is not a sentimental love. This is not the kind of love sometimes we think about that's more sentimental. This is a clear love, it's an active love, it's an obvious love that shows up, John says, in overcomers' lives. They passionately love the Father, and then they begin to passionately love what the Father loves, which are his people. It would be hard for me to convince you that I love you if I'm horrible to your children. And God's like, yeah, I'm not buying it either if you say you love me and you don't love my children. So that's what he's saying in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God. We love God and we obey his commands. 
We know we love the Father because it shows up in the way we love his children. I would say the more you love the Father, as you grow in your Christian faith, the more you love the Father, the more you will love his people. The two grow together. And you begin, you begin to get to the place where you actually enjoy God's people, even with all of our flaws. You enjoy serving God's people. You, you enjoy caring for and being with and cherishing God's people. I love you based just on the fact that you belong to him and I belong to him. We don't have to share anything else in common. I should love you just for that. And John says that over and over in 1 John. If you're not loving his people, you're not in Christ. It's the love test. Let me show you where it shows up. Um, look at chapter 4, verse 7, just someplace outside of chapter 5. Chapter 4, verse 7, he, he hammers again away on the love test. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. I cannot claim to know God and not love you. It cancels out my claim to love God. So he, he starts in chapter 5, verse 1, by saying, let me tell you who the overcomers are. How do you identify them? You can identify them by their faith. Secondly, you can identify them by their love. If they don't have faith, they're not an overcomer. If they don't have love, they're not an overcomer. That's what marks us, church. Chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about this new birth that happens when you're born again. As Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. When this new birth happens, it begins to change the way I view other people who have experienced the new birth. I will sacrifice for you because I love you. I will defend you because I love you. I will at times even confront you because I love you. I will encourage you because I love you. I will pray for you because I love you. I will sit around a table and study the Bible with you because I love you. I'll pray for your kids because I love you. If I don't love you, I don't love the Father. If I don't love the Father, I don't have the Son. If I don't have the Son, I'm not an overcomer. These are all chains in a link. How can you recognize an overcomer? By his faith, by his love. Third test by his obedience. He mentions obedience in verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, and we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Verse 3 is so strong, he actually says the love of God is keeping his commandments. Love for God, church, has a moral element to it. It changes my morals. My love for God shows up by keeping his commandments. Once again, it's not that sentimental love. You know what? Love compels us to do certain things for the people we love. Love actually compels us, genuine love, even just for other people. Not, not, I'm not even talking about love for God. I'm just talking about if you have a great friend, love compels you to do things that please the other person. We just want to. If you genuinely love someone, it, it compels you to want to please them. 
You want to honor them. If you genuinely love them, you want to respect them. You want to bring them joy. If you love them, it thrills you when you see them having joy. Then we come into a relationship with God and we say, I love you, but I, 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 don't, I don't care if my life brings you joy. I don't care if my life honors you. I don't care if my life respects you. And God's like, yeah, that, that's not love. Stop saying you love me. You know, I, I was thinking, when you genuinely love somebody, it, one, of the, one of the most amazing verses in 1 John to me, because I remember when I used to read it, and I was like, I don't know that that's true in my life, when he says, keeping his commands are not burdensome. Does that make you pause? Because there are times in my life when keeping God's commands has felt like a burden. I'm like, God, that command's not easy. Never gossip. Be generous. Forgive your enemies. That sometimes feels hard. So what's his point in saying in this obedience test that eventually you grow to the place where keeping his commands don't even, it doesn't even feel like the burden it used to feel like. You know, as we grow in our love for somebody, when they ask us to do something, we actually get to the place where we're eager to do it. I mean, if you genuinely love them, you're eager to do it. I remember I was thinking this, this week, I hadn't thought about this in forever, my mom's already gone to be with the Lord, but uh, even growing up, even in high school, just by God's grace in my life, I, I love my mom. I mean, I I, maybe I was just one of those odd high school kids, but at 17, I, I genuinely love my mom. And I remember my mom asking me one time, she mentioned this um, elderly lady in our church, she's a widow. And I, I mean, I, I knew the lady, I knew her name, but I didn't really know her, and my mom worked as a secretary at our church, and she just said, it would mean the world to this lady if you and a couple of your friends could run over to her house, and she has this little bitty project, I mean, it would take you guys 15 minutes, but... If she had all day, she couldn't get it done. And if you guys could knock that out for her, it would mean the world. And even though I didn't know her very well, I love my mom. And all my mom had to do was ask. It was not a burden, because I love my mom. So she asked, and in my mind, then it's easy. I remember one Saturday we were headed to play basketball, and we swung by the widow's house to take care of this, and one of the guys in my car was like, what are we doing? I thought we were going to play basketball. I was like, I know, but we're going to take care of this project first. He's like, I don't want to. I was like, oh, you're doing it because I love my mom. <laughs> I, and so or you can sit in the car, but this is not going to take us that long. But all it took was somebody I loved asking, and then it wasn't a burden. Maybe sometimes our, our burden in feeling like we need to obey God's commands is because I don't love him enough. You know, his commands aren't burdensome to Christians. They're intolerably burdensome to the world. They hate his commands. One of the big differences between Christians and non-Christians is the way we approach his commands. The obedience test becomes easier for us as we grow in our faith where the world can't stand his commands. They're a burden to them, and all they want to do is throw them off. Be faithful to one person my whole life? They're like, no, that's too big a burden. Be generous, forgive my enemies, burdensome. And as you begin to grow in the Lord, you're like, God, I'm going to need your help, but those don't look like the burden they used to look like. One of the marks of an overcomer is that they value God's commands. 
they keep his commands. And they begin to see them even as less and less of a burden. You could actually call it joyful obedience. There's a joy to the obedience. Um, let me just mention a, a, a verse out of the Old Testament here. You don't, have to, you don't have to look it up. But when I was thinking about this, keeping God's commands are not burdensome to us, <clears throat> I thought about a verse in Psalm 119. Uh, you can just jot this down. You, I'll read it to you. You can look it up later. Psalm 119, verse 54. You know, Psalm 119 is that the longest chapter in the whole Bible, and almost every verse in it says something about God's word. I mean, it's just God's statutes, God's commands, God's law, God's word. Every verse is about God's word. And you get to reading it, it's so long, you could actually skip over or not notice what's said in verse 54. In verse 54, it says this. He's proclaiming to God what he thinks of his law, and he says, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Your actual law has become the stuff I sing about. That's an amazing verse. We sing about the things we love. We do not sing about the things that we view as burdensome and painful. We sing about the things we love. That's why none of you have ever sung a song or written a song about going to the dentist. That's not what we sing about. We don't sing about root canals. For Psalm 119, verse 54, to say, your law has become the stuff of my songs. Is that not an amazing thing? I love your commands to the place that that's what I sing about. I remember years ago, Warren Wiersbe, who was a Bible scholar, he actually joked about that verse and said, imagine writing a song about the traffic laws in your community, the speed limits and how far you have to be from the railroad crossings when you stop or when you turn on your signal or wearing your seatbelt. Write a song and sing about the traffic laws. Nobody does that. The psalmist writes songs about God's law. It's no longer a burden to him. It's the stuff he sings about. There's a few other places where the obedience test shows up. I'll just show you one. Look at verse, um, chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now notice, John's tricky there. He slipped in the loved one right there at the end on us. In the same verse, he mentions the obedience command, you got to quit sinning, and he slips in, oh, by the way, you better be loving your brother. He slipped in the second test as he's talking about the third one. He just keeps repeating these three tests. Church, these are the ultimate markers of overcomers. Their faith, their love, and their obedience. Those are the three marks of those who overcome. So let me ask you, do you identify as an overcomer? In your heart and mind, are you still letting the world's criteria for who the ultimate winners are in life determine how you feel about yourself, or are you letting God's word determine how you feel about yourself? You are, Romans 8, more than conquerors, same word. You are, 1 John 5, overcoming, overcoming, overcoming. That's who you are. 
and this quality shows up in our lives through our faith, our love, and our obedience. It's the fruit of an overcomer. Now, let, let, me, let me end this morning. I, I want to be very practical here at the end. I want to say something from my heart, okay, to God's people. If you are a Christian, you are an overcomer. Sometimes it shows up in the Bible in the past tense, in the present tense, and sometimes in the future tense. You have overcome, you are overcoming, and you will overcome. It is a certainty, church. It is a certainty. You win. What Christ did on the cross was not just to hope he could get some of us across the finish line. You win. You absolutely win. You are a conqueror. You are an overcomer. Do not let the world tell you anything else. Do not let your past tell you anything else. You win. The cross says it with an exclamation point. Some days, I still lose battles. Temporarily. I still give in to sin and I hate it when I do. I lose. And it's only temporary. Because the Bible promises that even when I sin, even when I fail, even on these three tests, even when I don't love my brothers perfectly, or I don't obey his commands completely, he's still saying, you will overcome. What I started in you, I will finish. You're an overcomer. Sometimes I'm living in Romans 7 where Paul describes what it's like in his personal struggle with sin. I don't want to do the things, and yet I keep doing them, and then I don't want to do them, and I do them. What a wretched man I am. I feel that some days, don't you? I mean, can we be honest enough? Some days I don't feel like a winner. And God's like, I said you're a winner. I said you overcome. I said you conquer. You lost the battle yesterday, but it's a temporary loss. Ultimately, you don't lose. You win. If you're his child and you've experienced his grace and his new life, please listen. He will pick you up if he has to, and he will have to. He will pick you up and carry you across the finish line victorious. I remember years ago, I was on a long run with a friend who was in much better shape than I was, and long for me anyway, and we were running miles out in the country, and I absolutely ran out of gas. I mean, I was spent. And I remember him saying, I'll take the lead and you just stay on my heels. Well, that worked for about half a mile. And then I was still spent. I needed somebody who would pick me up on his back and carry me across the finish line. And Christ is like, that's what I do. I will make sure you overcome. You will finish this. Church, your faith is the victory. Your faith is unstoppable. Your salvation is untouchable. You will overcome the world. You will overcome sin's grip. You will overcome Satan's plan for God's creation. You will overcome all of those things if you're in Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in the last verse of John 16? He said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. 
I have overcome the world. He uses the exact same word John uses in John 5. Yeah, you will have trouble. There will be days you don't feel like a winner. Take heart. I have overcome the world. If you jump on with me, if I'm in you, if Christ is in you and you're in Christ, he punched your ticket, you will overcome. You overcome because he overcame. I'm not an overcomer. I just am really good friends with the ultimate overcomer, right? I'm not just staying on his heels. He's carrying me across the finish line victorious. So even on the days I don't feel like an overcomer, or maybe I didn't behave like an overcomer, he's like, I said you're an overcomer. The Bible declares you're an overcomer. These five verses in 1 John do tell us how to identify who the overcomers are. Okay, they do. Their faith, their love, and their obedience identify who the overcomers are. But this passage is ultimately built on the faithfulness of Christ. He will see to it that you overcome. He will see to it. Because he overcame, he will carry you and me across the finish line victorious. We need to be walking with him and demonstrating the fruit of faith, love for our brothers, and obedience to his commands in such a way that we love his commands, we write songs about his commands, Psalm 119, and we begin to not even see them as a burden. We love them. I just, when I was studying this passage, I started looking at other places in the New Testament where this concept of overcoming or being a conqueror, where else is that word used? It's interesting to me, I don't don't ever want to bore people, but it's interesting to me that the word, the Greek word that John uses in 1 John 5, or Paul uses in Romans 8, or Jesus uses in John 16, 33, it's all the same word. And it's the word, the Greek word, that gives us our English word, Nike. Long before a shoe company grabbed it and said, hey, if you wear our shoes, you'll win. John was using it to say, if you're in Christ, you overcome. Our military actually used the word years ago to name some of the missiles. There were Nike missile silos all across the United States. And they named them the Nike missiles. It's from this Greek word. Basically, as a country, we were saying, don't make us use these, because we will overcome. Don't make us use these. We will conquer. These are our Nike missile sites. Listen, it's more than shoes, and it's more than missiles. When God uses it to describe you, you win. The last place it's used, I'll just mention this. You may have not caught this. I didn't. In the book of Revelation, the beginning part of Revelation starts with those seven letters to the seven churches. Remember those, there's one to Ephesus and Smyrna. Every one of those short little letters where Christ says, hey, of these churches, these historical churches in Asia Minor, all of them, he said, hey, here's some things you're doing well, but I have this against you. You know those letters? Every one of those letters ends with this phrase. To him who overcomes, I will give the keys. To him who overcomes, will eat of the tree of life. To him who overcomes, I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. To he who overcomes, I'll write his name on the pillars in the temple of heaven. All of them end with this exact word. Even out of all those seven churches, even some of them that were really bad, 
there were overcomers coming out of those churches. The same word is used to describe believers in the book of Revelation. God's like, yeah, I've got overcomers in Ephesus. I've got overcomers in Smyrna. I've got overcomers in Thyatira. Same word. And it's you if you're in Christ. You are the overcomers. May we constantly show the world what overcomers look like, not using the world's criteria, but showing them faith in Christ, the right Christ. We get his identity right, and we put our faith in him. We demonstrate that God's made us overcomers by our love for each other. We love like nobody else. And we also show it by our commitment to obey his commands. We love his commands. We believe they're good for us. And they're not even a burden as we grow in our faith. You will cross the finish line. Christ will see to it. You will overcome. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're outside of Christ. Can I tell you with all the love that Christ has, you're not an overcomer. You lose. You lose in the end, and you'll lose for all eternity without Christ. But with Christ, you are an overcomer. And I, or another one of these overcomers who are here at Trinity today, would love to talk to you. We would skip lunch to talk to you, to tell you how you could become an overcomer, how you could become in Christ. But if you are in Christ, would you take a moment during our last song in just a minute and thank Christ The way Colossians 1 says it is, he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's where the winners are. And if you're there, can you just thank God for that? You're getting in on the fact that Christ is an overcomer and you got attached to Christ. Jesus, I thank you for what John reminds us. We feel like, we act like, we deserve to be losers. And along comes Christ and says, no, I'll make you overcomers. We thank you for that this morning. I thank you, God, that you would count me among the overcomers. May that good news never be old to me. Forgive me, God, when I do temporarily lose the battle. I give in to sin. I live like your commands are a burden to me, like I don't like them. May I be numbered among the people who actually sing about your commands like they're songs to me. Thank you for this promise. God, thank you that you will carry me. You will not give up on me. You will carry me across the finish line victorious. And it's in your son's name who overcame the world for us. It's in his name we pray.